0: Scripture says to show honor to those whom honor is due. And so I want to honor you for waking up this morning. Good job. You made it. Um, if, if anyone starts yawning, you know, we don't fully understand, but it's contagious. And so just bear that in mind. I'll yawn back. One of my favorite videos, this is going to be super ad lib, but you know, one of my favorite videos was the yawning looks like yelling. If you've never seen that, go ahead and look that up. It's amazing. Um, yeah. Speaking of silly things that I should not just kind of go down these rabbit trails, this is not in my notes, um, but uh, this is. So get back on track. Um, I was a youth pastor, if that doesn't show. But uh, for a few years, I was a youth pastor, and I learned a lot of stuff as a youth pastor. Um, one of those is, is how to plan better, and I'm still not a good planner, but um, sometimes I was, I was far worse of a planner than I am now. Um, my first major youth group event, um, we were going to have free pizza for all of these teenagers. And so the way it worked was we would gather weekly for youth group, and there would be pizza available, but you had to buy it. It was like a dollar a slice just to cover the cost and also be somewhat of a fundraiser for camp every year. But So there was like this this group of kids who would come starving every week, and they'd have their few dollars, and they'd buy pizza. And then a lot of the other kids, would just they didn't want pizza, or they're not going to pay for it, so they would not eat pizza. But when we had these big events, the first one was like, we're going to have free pizza this time. You don't have to pay for it. Everyone come hungry and I had no idea what I was in store for or what was, like, was going to happen there. I knew that more kids than usual would eat, and so I doubled our normal order, thinking like, okay, that should be good. Double the order, and we're going to put a limit on this. Two slices apiece, you little savages. You can only have two slices, um, but as the event starts, I realized that we are very quickly running out of pizza. Like, this is happening really quickly. Like, It's an event. Like they've invited kids. That's why we do these things because we're trying to reach out and like have these opportunities for more and more kids to come in and hear the gospel. And so they're having fun but they're bringing their friends and now there's a lot of kids that would not normally be there and they're all eating pizza and they don't usually all eat pizza. And I thought maybe some of them don't like pizza but they all like pizza. And that's, they all like pizza. And so we're running out. So I have this idea, cut the slices in half. You can still only have two slices, but now you're getting half the pizza. <laughs> like, slice them in half, and we're still running out. And you have all these hangry teenagers. They're expecting to eat. And here's the thing about teenagers. That the last thing you want is 100 hormonally amped and now starved anarchists running wild and turning against you. So... The cheapest pizza place in town is nearby, so I send one of the volunteers over there, like, buy all the pizzas they've got. This is the place that has, like, pizzas in the oven ready to go. You have no idea if they've been in there for two minutes or three hours. Like, it could, could be two days. I don't know. But the, the other thing about this place is the pizza tastes like cardboard. Like, you need hot sauce for this pizza because you're just pouring hot sauce on cardboard and shoving it in your mouth and trying to make it go down your gullet. Um, but it was, it was a bad deal. And I did this knowing... Like, how far we had stooped. Like, how low would we go to feed these teenagers this cardboard pizza? Do it. Do it. Just feed them something. Like, it was embarrassing um, because I did not plan it. We ran out, and that was sad. Um, but that's, this is true in a lot of life, right? That scarcity, this idea that there are limited resources, is terrifying. And so how much of our life is just dictated by the fact that in our minds we think there's not enough? There's not enough time, there's not enough money, there's not enough opportunity, there's not enough whatever, and so much of scarcity, that scarcity mentality is what fuels our fears and then drives us, that we are responding with this scarcity mindset, this mentality that there's only so much, and so I've got to get it while the getting's good, it's going to run out, it fuels our fears. And so we gotta, we gotta acknowledge that tension and then bring it into today's text as we continue our walk through the gospel according to John. So, with, with me, will you turn to John chapter 2? Uh, the last couple of weeks, I have so loved um, going through chapter 1, the prologue of chapter 1, um, as we, we unpack that for our Christmas Eve and then Christmas. I'm sorry, the the week prior to Christmas Eve and then Christmas Eve gathering. So if you have not listened to those, I would greatly encourage you to go back and listen on the podcast um, because it's really important. The prologue sets up everything we need to know about Jesus to see him in every encounter as we go through this gospel. Um, So he has introduced Jesus as the eternal son of God. He is not created. He has always existed. This is the word, the logos. This is the reasoning, the meaning, the one who has the power to create and to sustain all things, making sense of it all. This is God himself now takes on human flesh and pitches his tent among us, that he dwells with us, that God has entered in. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, this incarnation, incarnation, that he has stepped into carne, flesh. God the creator has become like his own creation and now he lives in this person known as Jesus of Nazareth as fully God and fully man. This is who John has introduced us to. And so we need to know that as we go throughout all these stories and now um, we said there's the prologue and then the book of signs, then the book of glory and then the epilogue. And so we are moving into the book of signs now as we start chapter two. So read with me. Chapter two, the first couple verses here, it says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. So there are some things that I'm gonna share with you today that are highly debated and I want to have the humility and honesty to say I don't fully know, but I'll share what I think. Um, this is one of them. This is highly debated. What does this on the third day reference mean? On the third day is debated, is this, a continued count from chapter one, because if you count every time it says on the next day in chapter one, that would lead you up to four days. And then now on the third day would mean we have made it to the end of a week. And I find that pretty compelling. The John from the get-go says in the beginning, just like the first words of the scriptures, and he wants you to see that Jesus is the creator. And now he's walked you through the first week as he's introduced Jesus. And now we come to day seven, the day of rest, the culmination of this. And now on the Sabbath day, the fulfillment of the week, this creation week. Now here is Jesus who has been put forward as the creator on this third day reference. Maybe it's meant to draw us to the climax and conclusion of the creation week so that we should look at this day and say something profound is going to happen. That he has come here to accomplish everything. The one who is the creator now has stepped into a broken creation. What is he going to do? And so a lot of emphasis is placed on this, this third day reference drawing us in. We also know, just as Christians, that there's also huge significance to the third day because what happened on the third day after his death? His resurrection. And so anytime we see third day, our minds should jump towards the end, but then come back to the beginning. So I just love how John like, throws everything all over the place. Like We start this gospel, if we have any knowledge of the gospel, and it's like, but I know the ending on the third day, and I'm thinking resurrection. Death and resurrection. But then I'm also thinking creation week, that in the beginning, I'm going all the way back to the So we've got this creator and all this stuff just kind of colliding in this. As we come to this day, regardless of how you read that, because there, there are multiple ways you could read that. Like, we don't know, is it the third day of the wedding? Is it the third day? Like, I don't know. There, there's so much there. But I find it really compelling to think this is creation week. And here's, here's the climax, or here's the conclusion to that. Regardless of where we land on any of that, look straight forward at what it says happens. On this day, what happens? Jesus, the word, the logos, God himself went to a party. Jesus went to a wedding, a celebration. And we could just stop there to think like, what do you think of when you think of God? And what do you think of when you think of God coming into this mess that we have made? And then to think right off the bat, let's go party. Is that what you think of when you think of God? I think Jesus would accept an invitation to a wedding, that he would go to something that is a celebration, that is a joyous occasion, and that's where God goes. And that should really shape a lot of the way that we view him, to think that's what he does on this day. He goes to a wedding, he goes to a party. So look at verse 3. We're at this party, we're at this wedding in Cana. Verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, everyone's... "Ah." Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine, when the wine ran out. So here's the thing. Jesus' mom apparently has a very close relationship to the family that's hosting this wedding. She's got insider information. She knows the wine has run out. And this is kind of on the DL. This is, this is not something you want everybody to know. She comes to Jesus and she's like, the wine ran out. Like that'd be something you'd kind of like hush, hush, whisper. Why? Because this is embarrassing. This is cutting the slices. This is watering down the wine. This is, hell, we're still running out. There's no more wine. We didn't plan appropriately. And now this is bringing dishonor to us. This is shameful for our family. This is an embarrassment. It's a big, big deal to run out of wine at a wedding. This is a party. People are supposed to come here and feel good. They're supposed to be joyous. They're supposed to celebrate with us. And the thing that's supposed to help us do all that stuff has run out, it's run dry. And Jesus' mom somehow knows this has happened while it's stayed a secret. Like they don't want everyone to realize we've got nothing else. Like table three and seven and 45, they've all put in another order and we don't have anything to give them. What are we gonna do? Like imagine the embarrassment as the host now has to stand up in front of everybody and say, so sorry, we're out of wine. The party's over. Oh. Uh. How lame. And everybody leaves. What's supposed to be like the, the, like the party of your life at your wedding. And everybody walks away like, oh, that's embarrassing. Jesus is invited into this embarrassment. He's invited into this shame. He's invited into this calamity. So we continue on verse 4. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked Everybody says, (gasps) my hour has not yet come. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Jesus is essentially questioning why she would come to him with such a problem. Yeah, that's embarrassing. Why would you come to me with that? Why would you go to Jesus with your shame? Are you even willing to go to Jesus with what's embarrassing? With what you're failing at repeatedly? with what you want to hide from everyone else. Are you willing to go to Jesus with that? But she comes to him and he says, why would you do that? And I love the beauty in that is, he didn't say you're wrong in doing that. So why would you do that? What does that have to do with you and me, woman? And there's the other tension, that's mom. He called her woman. And we need to diffuse that a bit because so much of that, just with the nuance of a woman in our day and age, like if I am talking to my wife, who I love and cherish and want to respect, and I say, listen, woman, you know how well that's going to go for me? Not well, I can promise you. So if Jesus calls his mom woman, well, first we need to diffuse that and say, that's, it's, it's different now. To, to call someone a woman in the ancient Near East, was not the same as me calling my wife woman. We, we have a new nuance in our language that makes that sound offensive and derogative. But in this day and age, Jesus was not saying something derogative. It's not offensive. It's just an acknowledgement of the God-given identity that a female has. And sidebar, we should celebrate that. That God created us in his image, male and female he created us. And there's so much confusion and we need to see the the gender dysphoria and all that stuff with great compassion that there is so much hurt there. It is wrong, but we can enter into that conversation with compassion that there are people genuinely confused, but we should celebrate what God has designed that for Jesus to call her woman is to acknowledge her God-given position that he created her as woman, as female and said it is good. And so he's not saying something offensive, he's just acknowledging the reality that you are a woman. And so why would he do that? Because there still is a tension there. Like, that's mom. Even if it's not the same as me calling my wife woman, he still could have called her mom. Why did he call her woman? That seems so impersonal. That's so weird. Why would Jesus do that? I and mean, that should rub us. And again, this is one of the things that I don't fully know. But I have an idea. Again, if we're in this idea of like Jesus has been introduced as creator. And now Jesus, the creator, shows up at a party and his mom, who has this very close relationship with him, shows up and brings something of shame and embarrassment to Jesus. And he responds by calling her woman, by saying, you female created being. It's almost like he's distinguishing himself further. As the creator stands there as his own creation, humanity in woman, as he addresses her, humanity comes to him with embarrassment and shame. And he addresses it. And so I think that's what's happening here, but I want to say, I don't know. But I think that is what's happening. I see that as so beautiful. That Jesus is further signifying his identity as creator by referencing his mother as woman, implying humanity, as humanity comes to creation, to creator. <clears throat> but then he connects it further. He says, my hour has not yet come. So somehow, humanity coming to Jesus with shame and embarrassment, with failure, and Jesus responds by saying, yes, I'm the creator, and at creation, you've come with us, but it's not yet my hour. Like, well, what is his hour then? What, what is that? Where did that come from? You call mom woman and then you say, it's not my hour. Like, well, what is your hour then, Jesus? We should ask that question. And this is actually going to be a theme that John just grows throughout this gospel leading up to his hour. And we'll talk about what that is in a little bit. Let's keep reading for now. After having been called woman by her son, (laughs) Mary now says in verse 5, Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus' mother is apparently not fazed by his response. She still had full confidence that somehow Jesus could be approached with something shameful, embarrassing, a failure, and he could rectify the situation. He could salvage the party, that Jesus could make the party continue. And in fact, the party could get better. Somehow she is not rocked by his response. Instead, she says, listen, boys, listen to my boy. Do what he says. And Jesus looks around. You've got these six stone jars for Jewish purification. They're full of water. This is water that you come to when you're dirty. You need to be ritually cleansed. And so you need to wash your hands, all this stuff. And so these are waters that would represent all of your filth. And that's to get rid of your filth. They're full of water. There's 120 to 180 gallons of water in these jars. And Jesus says, hey, make sure those are full. And now, now that they're full, go ahead and take some of that to the master of the banquet. And he takes it out. And this guy who doesn't know what's going on like he's still kind of in the dark as to like is the wine out like what's going on here like oh we've got more wine okay like all right like panic is over but he goes to taste it to make sure that it's good enough to serve and he's like what this doesn't make sense you go to dinner you throw a party you start with the best beverage the best tasting one. You bring out the old bottle. You bring out the high dollar bottle. This is, this is the good stuff. You start with that because right now they have all their mental faculties. They're actually enjoying that. They can taste everything, get the, the intricacies of that, the full experience of that. And then when their senses have been dulled, then you bring out the boxed wine. You bring out the cheap stuff. This doesn't make sense. We're already past that point. We're approaching the end of the party. And now you bring out the best Why would you do that? This is crazy. Yes, serve it. Give it like free-flowing wine now. This is great stuff. Why would you do that? That's wild. This is the first of his signs, it says in verse 11. So we look back at verse 11. Jesus said this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. First of his signs. As he shows up, he's brought... It's brought to his attention that there's an embarrassing situation unfolding here. We've run out of wine. This is going to go poorly for the wedding party, the family. This is not going to be good. Jesus responds by distinguishing himself and then rectifying the situation. making water into wine. And it says this is the first of his signs. That word first there is the same word that's used in John 1.1. 1, 1 in the beginning. Beginning and first are the same Greek, archi. It means beginning, head, or key. And the idea is, if you could understand this sign, if you would understand this, the starting place here, then you'd understand all the rest. And so what is the key? What is the source, the head of this? What is it that we're supposed to see about this sign that's going to help us to unpack and understand the rest of this gospel? And to see that, We need to see what it signifies and see that Jesus is the only named character in the story. Did you catch that? His mother is not named. The banquet master is not named. The servants are not named. The wedding party, the bride, the groom, none of them are named. Only Jesus is named. And if you were to encounter a story where only one person is named, who do you think is the focus of that story? The person named. Jesus is the focus of this story. And yet, beautifully, in the upside-down way of Jesus and his kingdom, Jesus being the only named character, the main character of the story, he still performs this miracle in a way that does not steal the spotlight from the bride and the groom. They are spared embarrassment. John, in recording this, this miracle, he doesn't even tell us about the miracle itself. Like he doesn't actually show us any detail of the miracle being performed. It's just this is what was brought to him, and this is what happened afterward. We don't know, like, did Jesus go over and, like, swirl? Like, Did he do the weird thing where he spits in the mud and rubs it in somebody's eye? Like, what did Jesus do? We don't know. Because the point is not actually the miracle. The point is the person. The point is Jesus. The focus is on the person Jesus. We have to see the focus on Jesus clearly as a person. Then we ask the question, well, who is this person? Who is this Jesus that John has introduced as the eternal God, the creator and sustainer of all things? Now he narrows it further for us and says, this is who he is. He's the one who turns water into wine. This is Jesus, the Messiah. This is Jesus, our Savior. And how would we know that? Because of this sign of turning water into wine? How would we know that Jesus is the Messiah because of that? Because Psalm 104, 14 and 15 says, He, meaning God, causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth, wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. Who provides wine? God. Who makes the wine? God. And yes, you'll have... Your guys at the vineyard cultivating wine, but who makes it? It's God. Or Proverbs 3 9 to 10, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. That wine is a sign of blessing from God. And we must see that wine is a gift, a celebration, a blessing from God, and yet it comes with warnings. That you can misuse this for sure. Drunkenness is prohibited in Scripture. We are not to get drunk, but there is this freedom to enjoy this blessing from God. But then there are limitations to our freedom because in love, as brothers and sisters, we choose not to enjoy a freedom when it's going to offend a brother or a sister. And so we we see wine as a blessing from the Lord, and yet we do need to have these safeguards of. Drunkenness is prohibited, and we let go of our freedoms for the sake of our brothers and sisters. But in this moment, you have to see over and over, Scripture is repeatedly saying that wine is a blessing from God. And now here's Jesus turning water into wine. And then we go further. that Genesis 49 records Jacob, descendant of Abram, becomes Abraham, who's given this promise that through his seed the nations will be blessed. He's going to make this mighty nation out of him. And it continues. And Jacob, as he blesses his son Judah, he tells Judah, a king is coming from you. A king will come from you. And this king who comes from you, he tells him that this blessing is going to come. And it's over and over with a description of wine. That this king will be marked by wine. Wine. His, his clothes are going to be just soaked in wine. All these references to wine and a king. And then Amos 9 picks up the same idea as the prophet tells us of the coming Messiah, this coming king, and how he would reign with blessing that is again marked by an abundance of wine to be enjoyed. And so we put these together that wine is a blessing from God and wine is tied to the Messiah, the coming king, who is our salvation. And so the focus of the story is on Jesus. But who is Jesus? Jesus is The blessing to the world. Jesus is the blessing to the nations. Jesus is the king who is marked by an abundance of wine and blessing. This is who he is. And this is the good news, the gospel. When you think about this, that you have these six stone jars, each containing gallon after gallon of water. And what's it for? Jewish purification, for ritual cleansing to take your filth, knowing that you need to come to this water jar, you come to any event and you acknowledge that you have come with baggage, you've come with filth, you're dirty, you're blemished, you're not holy, you're not ready to engage this. And so you need something that will remove the filth. And they have these rituals, these practices that are trying to cleanse you so that you can now enter the temple you can enter into this sanctified meal and ceremony, all these things. And Jesus chooses to use these things that are meant to deal with your filth. And so they would be gross. Like you're getting water from that and wiping filth off and everything. And he says, fill them on up with water and it becomes the life of the party. The Jesus on the cross, would take our sin on himself. That he would take our sin, our filth, our shame, our condemnation would be put on him and he would exchange that with us for his righteousness. That we would now have his righteousness. As was he takes something that should just be so pointedly, that's our filth, and he would bring life out of it. Cleansing, that he would actually cleanse us. I, just love, I mean, you can you take this to so many extremes, and some of them can be dangerous, but I mean, just on the surface level, wine. That you come to these ritual purification jars, and there's water, and you do this external act to try to cleanse yourself. And the idea especially being you're about to eat. You need to wash your hands because you don't want that filth contaminating you by coming from the outside and going inside, so you must do something on the outside. And yet, what does wine do as he converts it to wine? Wine is something from the outside that goes inside and then leads to joy that comes outside and life. The beauty, the depth of what Jesus is doing here to show that he is the promised blessing. He is the Messiah. He is the king who has come. He's the one who can take our filth, our shame, the embarrassment of our situation, namely our lives and all of our failures, and he can make the party happen. That he can bring life from death. He can bring holiness from filth. This is who Jesus is, and this is what this signifies. And did you know how much wine he made? Six stone jars for ritual washing, each containing twenty to thirty gallons. That's one hundred and twenty to one hundred and eighty gallons of wine coming in at the end of the party. And talk about a party! <laughs> They're running out and they're scared, they're embarrassed and now all of a sudden we have 120 to 180 gallons of wine to keep the party going. This is way more than is needed. Way more than is needed. You need to see how absurd this is. That This is a gallon, okay? This is one gallon right here. Can you have just any visual clue how much one gallon of wine is? Please don't drink that much wine. That's one gallon. There's 120 minimum gallons of that. So we just keep going. You guys are gonna be here for a while. You get it. 120 gallons. Now, if you think about this, in terms of like a wine glass, this is just five gallons, okay? Just five gallons. I'm not a wine connoisseur, but this is what you call a very, very healthy pour. Like, you're going to spill that. That's one glass, okay? Okay, Keep going. I think there's more in here. Yeah, yeah, we can definitely get two cups out of this. Uh, Maybe three? You think we can get three? Man, the party is going to be so good. Man you know what, this, we could just keep going and going. Do you get it? How many people at this party, at the celebration, can enjoy the best wine now? And there's just more than anyone can handle. And that's his point. You, see, you could actually take and fill this pool up. There's 120 minimum gallons of wine now at the end of the party. His point is not to just kind of come in, just play and like, hey, 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 guys, just want you to kind of catch something here. Messiah. I'm blessing. Here's blessing and here's life in abundance. No, it is over the top. He wants you to just feel it as you see. There's 120 minimum gallons of wine at the end of the party. This is more than we could ever want. This is more than we could ever need. The party will continue. There's so much here. There's such an abundance. The point is that Jesus is more Jesus is more. He's so much more. And now I have to ask, have you settled? Have you settled thinking that some created thing, some experience is ultimate and that that is your greatest desire, that you want something more than God himself? Have you settled for that? Because that's what it is. It is settling all of our idolatry, all of what we put in the place of God himself to be our comfort, to be our security, to be our identity, to give us meaning, to give us security. Any of these things that we put in the place of God, do you see that that is just settling? Because Jesus is more. He is everything we could ever need and more. Everything we could ever need and more. So we have to be honest about what's failing us. When you think of what have you put in the place of God, I think of the things in my life that I want a stable bank account. I want, I want respect. I want prestige. I want to accomplish all these things. And I get so much of my identity wrapped up in those things Or I want comfort. That's a huge one for me. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to be just having to, to work harder or whatever it is. What is the thing that we run to And can we be honest about the fact that it is failing us? Can you be honest about the fact that the wine has run out? And then when we go to Jesus with our embarrassment, with our shame that I ran after things that never satisfy, and see him standing there, I can more than satisfy. In fact, I can take your very screw up, all of your mess, your contamination, i take it on myself and I'll give you my righteousness. That Jesus would die having been murdered. The most heinous crime in all of human history. That the Son of God, the only truly innocent human who is also truly God, would die at the hands of his own creation. But he would take that and that is his hour. His hour of glory is a reference to his death and his resurrection. That he would take that, the darkest time when the sun literally is darkened for hours as he dies, in that darkness, and he would bring life. That he would illuminate the dark, as John introduced him, as we talked about last week. This light shining in darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it, the darkness cannot comprehend it. That this is Jesus. So we have to be honest about what's failing us, the inability of these things to satisfy. Be honest and feel the weight of the wine running out, but then come to Jesus seeing that he is more. He is more than enough. And this is not about us just having a faith in our overabundance. Like if you think that it's just about getting the wine from Jesus, you've missed it. It's about Jesus himself. The point is not the wine. The point is Jesus. You have to see him, that he is more than enough. This is Jesus who all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, They record this conversation in the upper room as Jesus is about to be betrayed and he's going to be arrested in a garden. They're going to have this mockery of a trial, crucify him. But in that conversation, Jesus makes a statement that he's not going to drink new wine again with us until he drinks it again with us in the kingdom. He drinks wine again. You know where? On the cross. As he says, I thirst. These Roman soldiers offer cheap wine. It's mixed with vinegar. It's sour. And he drinks it. And it helps a little with the pain, I'm sure. But it's disgusting. But he doesn't drink it with us there. Once we have to catch, I won't drink it again new with you until I drink it with you in the kingdom. But then he drinks it again as he drinks the cup of wrath on the cross. where he's not with us because he's traded places with us. So that we could again be with him in the kingdom. Where again, there's a coming party. And this is the picture of scripture from start to beginning. That the people of God are the, are the bride of the bridegroom. And Jesus is the bridegroom. And we're the bride. He's presenting us without spot or blemish before himself. We are going to come to him. He's coming to us. And yet we will meet him. And there's going to be this wedding feast that we see at the end of Revelation. Where on the cross, he paid the legal obligation. He made the payment. And so we are betrothed to him. It is legally binding that he is ours and we are his. And yet the wedding has not yet been consummated. Because in the ancient Near East, this is how it would work. The, the groom would come and he proposed. propose they would make this payment. And so now the marriage is sealed. You are betrothed. This is bride and bridegroom. And yet the husband, the groom would go away and prepare a place, just like Jesus said. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He would build on to his father's house, and then he would come back, and there'd be this massive party as he would go and get his bride and bring her back, and then there'd be this massive party that could last for three to seven days, typically. And the picture is that we're in that waiting right now, that on the cross, he paid the ransom. He paid our penalty. Now We wait. The groom is coming back for us. We're going back to be with him in his kingdom forever. And there's going to be a lot of wine. And the day that he will drink it new with us, there will be joy never ending. He loves us like that. We long for that day. We have hope this day because of that day, knowing that the wedding is coming. So we can live today in faith, with faith, in God's promises. You can trust him. You can believe him. As you look again at verse 11, this is his first sign of glory. And what do his disciples do? Says they believe in him. And so I want to conclude and ask, well, you believe in him. You believe in the one who can turn water into wine. The one who is the promised king and Messiah. Our salvation to rescue you, to give you life, to give you meaning, to give you eternal joy. that The wine won't run out. He loves us like that. So, skeptic, you don't know if you believe it. Seeker, you want to know what to believe and not be doofed. Stumbling saint, stuck over and over in the same sins. Or doubting saint, just wondering is there really enough wine? Is it for me? Will you believe this good news? That he loves you. He wants you to come to him with everything that would be embarrassing, everything that brings you shame, says, come to me and watch what I can do with that wreck. Follower of Jesus, I love that multiple people asked me if we were going to celebrate baptisms today when they saw this pool. If this was our building, I would keep it right there. Who do you need to share this good news with? Let's see people come to faith. Let's see people come to know Jesus the one who turns water into wine, and then let's baptize them. you pray with me? Father, thank you for your great, great love. You would love us like this. Thank you, God, that you would reveal yourself in such a glorious way. And God, as we continue through this gospel, um, help us to keep this in mind, that that as John has introduced you, you are the preexistent, co-equal, co-eternal God from all of eternity past. You have no beginning. And yet you stepped into this. You took on flesh, Jesus. And then we see you at a wedding, turning water into wine so that we would know with certainty that you are God and you are the Messiah. You are our salvation. We can never save ourselves but you have the power to save. And so we thank you. We praise you and we will praise you forevermore looking forward to the day of this wedding feast when we will celebrate with you and be with you to see you face to face. No more sin. No more death. No more tears. All the former things will have passed away. Thank you. We love you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.